Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion. Unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> Hey listeners, if you yourself are a writer or know somebody who writes, then you might be interested to note that we are running a week-long horror writing mini-course. From January 20th to the 27th, we're running an online course for those looking to dip their toes into the wonderful world of writing scary stories. It's to be run by myself and best-selling author Daniel Wilcox, and we'll be helping newer writers go from coming up with a story idea to writing the first draft, editing it all in one week. If you're interested, then head over to hawkandcleaver.com forward slash horror for all of the relevant information. Once again, that's hawkandcleaver.com forward slash horror. Today's episode is Ms. Jemima Strench and the Cephalophore of Hecate Hall, written by L.P. Mills and narrated by Alex Elroy. My dearest Amelia, it is with great trepidation and queasiness of spirit that I pen this missive. Oh, Gemma, you are no doubt thinking with a coy roll of the eye. You always did have a flair for the melodramatic. While I could scarcely contest this sentiment, I am afraid that in this measure my histrionics are most certainly justified. You see, I fear I have done something. Yes, something quite terrible. In my overwrought state, and perhaps against my better nature, I race ahead of myself. Allow me to restart, and to reset myself at the very beginning. I speak, of course, of Dr. Carcosa and his ill-fated excursion to the uncivilized world. 
I have no doubt that Mr. Carcosa's exhibition at the British Museum is as seared into your mind as it is mine. The savage effigies, the most wicked fetishes, the strange and arcane pictographs strewn across dusty orange rock. There we stood, at the very turn of the century, a miraculous future stretched ahead of us. And yet it felt as though we ourselves were staring into the deepest and darkest depths of the past. From that moment on, as you will recall, I have been quite enthralled by Dr. Carcosa and his discoveries. Oh, Amelia, if you could have seen me on those countless feverish evenings spent in the library, poring over tome and journal with sweat-drenched brow, why, you would think me quite mad. But study I did, and in time I rose through the academic ranks until I was invited to meet with Dr. Carcosa himself. I found him really rather enchanting, in spite of his oftentimes macabre appearance. He looks very old in person, much older than his meagre fifty-six years would otherwise suggest, and his cheeks have a sunken, sallow quality but his eyes, Amelia. Those eyes have witnessed things that you or I could scarcely consider, and a wicked intelligence is captured in those inky pupils of his. I first met Dr. Carcosa at a dinner function held at his manor house at Hecate Hall. The good doctor, you see, had heard of my research into that most bizarre relic of the ancient world the cuneiform scripts of the Sumero-Akkadian peoples. As a quick aside, I had been studying a most bizarre trend in many of those fledgling societies that made their home in the antediluvian plains of the Persian Gulf. You see, dearest Amelia, there is quite the recurrence of crude, headless figures drawn onto cave walls and primitive shrines who have, in the gaining of sacred knowledge, found themselves decapitated by the sheer breath of the spiritual world. I feel some prideful pang of delight when I announce that Dr. Carcosa must have been quite taken by my research, for he soon invited me to attend his private lecture and function. There, I was to socialize with the brightest and most devilishly erudite members of our empire, summoned from across the very span of the globe with the hope of elaborating upon some of my most Byzantine hypotheses. It was there, amidst the splendour of Hecate Hall, that I first locked eyes with he who would go on to become my nemesis. That blasted, arrogant toad, that pitiful wretch of a man. It was there that I first met Milton Carter. Morton. I imagine I have written to you of my frustrations with Milton Carton Morton before, dear Amelia, but my mind does escape me something terrible at current. Please forgive me if I am caught repeating myself. A ratty man in a grey pinstripe suit, his thin moustache perched over thin, leering lips. Milton Carter Morton is quite possibly the most vile and wicked beast that has ever had the gall to walk these fair and pleasant isles. You see, 
Even as we stand in a dignified and civilised age, men like Morton will continue to take advantage of that most ancient human capacity for superstition. He is the sole curator of Milton Carter Morton's marvellous Museum of the Strange, a phantasmagoria of supposedly fantastical items and oddities. My Amelia, Milton Carter Morton is a huckster, a fraud and a vagabond. Despite this, Dr. Carcosa has found much enjoyment and mirth amongst his dusty collection of curios, and it is on this merit that Morton secured himself an invitation. On the evening in question, Morton had brought with him a Jenny Hanover, a curious artefact from the seafaring age of discovery, in which the desiccated carcass of a skate or ray is twisted into the fearsome form of a dragon or some other beast. He paraded the specimen about the function, quite proud of the swooning dignitaries and agape mouths of academics. I, being of sound mind and sturdy constitution, could not contain my cynicism. It is but a hoax, I exclaimed quite heartily when Morton brought this model to my table for a demonstration. Look upon the gill, the curve of the cartilaginous frame, the sting in the tail. This is no basilisk, nor is it any being more exotic than the humble dactylopitus. I can assure you, Amelia, that Milton Carter Morton did not one bit care for my assertions. He attempted to refute me, pointing to the creature's teeth and fearsome snarl. When this had no effect to dull his embarrassment, Morton began his attempt to sabotage my reputation. What could this simple calligrapher, and a female one at that, lest we forget, know of the more remarkable subjects that dwell within God's kingdom? Be still, good woman, and leave the wonders of natural philosophy to those in the know. I am not an impatient woman, my Amelia, nor am I cruel. But in mocking my intelligence, my profession and my gender, Milton Carter Morton made a terrible enemy for himself that day, and one that I will now confess would soon prove fatal. The evening continued as it had commenced, with academics and aristocrats discussing the latest fads in the scientific world. However, with my ego challenged and my pride thoroughly bruised, I began to fixate on the ways in which I could gain my vengeance on this charlatan of a man. It was then that inspiration struck, and it was facilitated, as these things so often are, by Dr. Carcosa himself. Knowledge, he began, is a powerful thing, and in my line of work it has more often than not proved to be dangerous. He then began to outline a trip of an archaeological site in some far-flung corner of the equatorial jungle, in which a temple was discovered, containing runes and hieroglyphs that upon closer study seemed identical to many of the cuneiform scripts that I encountered in my research of the Sumerians. Moreover, many of the images carved into the temple walls showed shamans and sorcerers, all of whom were missing their heads. As an academic of the fine arts, you are of course familiar with the imagery of the cephalophore in Catholic iconography. Those beheaded martyrs gifted with the power of divine speech and prophecy. Well, 
Carcone says of the thought that these figures are in part a reflection of an older myth, one that dates back to the very cradle of our species, and that his discovery confirms this. However, and here those dark, wicked eyes of his flashed with something bordering on apocalyptic revelry, he reminded us of his earlier adage, Knowledge is power, but it is also dangerous. Those researchers who studied these pictographs in detail, he claimed, oftentimes found themselves quite irreversibly insane. Complaining of raucous headaches caused by the burden of forbidden knowledge on their humble minds. Yet more superstition, perhaps, but here I noticed something most peculiar. Morton's face had drained of all colour. His eyes desperately widened and his mouth ajar. He was beyond terrified, and began to share a story of some Arabian gentleman who, upon discovering an eldritch book of law, had too gone quite mad. He seemed truly beset by horror, and then I was struck with a most wicked and delectable plan for revenge. At once I set about acquiring as many materials surrounding Carcosa's expedition as I could, finding recreations and translations of those supposedly cursed writings found upon the temple walls. I compiled these notes, with a few simple bone relics and primitive talismans, into a parcel that I had anonymously delivered to Morton's marvellous museum under the guise of some handsome donation to his collection, all in the hope that it would well and truly frighten the horrid little man. The following week I visited Morton and found that my plan had worked wonders. He looked quite gaunt and bereft of sleep, and his pale hands shook as he answered the door. Amelia, how I could have laughed at his face! I had, for all intents and purposes, found a way to weaponize the very superstition he was peddling to the masses. Not content there, I immediately returned to London's illustrious libraries, compiling another wicked parcel of forbidden lore. Yet again I had it delivered anonymously to Morton, and once again, upon my visit, I found him a spooked shell of his former arrogant self. Gone was he who laughed at me, who mocked and chided my efforts at debunking, and instead I found a desperate little man who complained of cruel headaches, who jabbered dumbly of idiotic nuclear gods that dwell in the deepest stars. I should have stopped, Amelia. I know this now. But I was so simply taken by the effect my little plan was having. I could not have stopped even if I wanted to. Perhaps it was base cruelty, or perhaps something more nefarious. More diabolical was at work, as I composed my final collection of notes. I copied intricate imagery of headless enchanters, recounted translations offering prayers up to blind, chaotic gods of savagery and spite, and with this final delivery I sealed my own doom. Some weeks passed, and I put my little prank out of my mind. Milton Carter Morton ceased to be present at his little curiosity cabinet, seemingly favouring dark rooms where no piercing light could exacerbate his migraines. 
and I was accepted warmly into the open hands of London's greatest academics. For a time, darling Amelia, I was ever so happy. Then comes the evening to which I write this very letter, and the horrors that preceded. I awoke a little before midnight to the sound of a most desperate knocking, emanating from the front door. I put on my slippers and with some curiosity made my way downstairs to see the silhouette of a man cast in amber lamplight against the window of my front room. In spite of the street lamp, I could not make out this figure's face, and wary of recent criminal undertakings, not to mention those grisly murders that haunted Whitechapel just a few years ago, I resolved to keep the door locked and return to bed. Again the knocking ran out through the house. Again, and again, and again. And no matter how densely I plugged my ears, I could not escape that horrible noise. Amelia, it stays with me even now. More familiar than the beating of my own heart. I got to thinking that perhaps it was some poor waif, alone and in desperate trouble, who needed my help or guidance. Finally, I steadied my nerves and attended to the door. Amelia. Oh, Amelia, I can scarcely describe what I saw. Standing on the front step, hands outstretched with open palms, stood a man dressed in a blood-soaked pinstripe suit. His shirt collar was caked in blackish-grey viscera, and his fingernails were torn and most ragged. But when I went to study his face, Amelia, I could not contain my horror. For he did not have a face. Nor, indeed, did he have a head at all. Simply a stump of a neck, torn open as if by a blast of dynamite, still spurting blood from some accursed inner workings. In spite of my terror, or perhaps because of it, I recognised the body immediately. The rakish form of Milton Carter Morton his pinstripe suit stained with gore, his head claimed in its entirety by the explosive, arcane knowledge I had been slipping surreptitiously into it. He lurched, and for a horrifying moment I thought that he might just succeed in his murderous intentions. I turned and fled, retreating to the safety of my study and barricading my door behind me. Now I pen this letter to you, with trembling hand and weary heart listening to the sickening sounds of the headless abomination that pounds at my door. Perhaps I deserve this fate, dearest Amelia. Perhaps it is my due reward for my cruel joke. But know this. Knowledge is dangerous, yes. But none could be more dangerous than those who, with spite and malice, wield it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Other Stories. Ms. Jemima Strench and the Cephalophore of Hecate Hall were written by L.P. Mills, narrated by Alex Elroy, edited by Carl Hughes with music by Melon and Tom Robson. A quick thank you to our latest patron over at patreon.com forward slash hawk and cleaver, Oliver K. Beverly. Thank you so much for your helping to keep the show going. Lastly, if you yourself are a writer or know somebody who writes, then you may be interested to know that we are running a week-long horror writing mini-course from January 20th to the 27th. 
We're running the course for those looking to dip their toes into the wonderful world of writing scary stories. It'll be run by myself and best-selling author Daniel Wilcox. And we'll be helping you new writers go from coming up with a story idea to writing the first draft, editing it, and getting it ready for market, all in one week. If you're interested, then head over to hawkandcleaver.com forward slash horror for all of the relevant information. And once again, that's hawkandcleaver.com forward slash horror. Until next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,